Welcome to Into Theology. I'm Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we're in the second week of looking at one of the great theologians of the ancient world, the author of Ecclesiastes, or the book of Ecclesiastes, this great work we're looking at. We kind of covered the first six chapters last time. We'll basically finish the book today, but we're really doing more of a reflection on the book, the big picture stuff. So we're not doing like a kind of a verse by verse thing, but more of a theological reading and reflection on it. As we get going, Ian, you read a, a book this week or, or part of a book this week anyways, that gave some insight into Ecclesiastes. Can you kind of... I read the whole book in a week. You read yeah, all of Bruce <laughs> Walkie's book. Just kind of share some of the things you were learning from it. You were kind of mentioning earlier, it seemed interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things that all just kind of tied in together for me with Ecclesiastes that just sort of kind of, kind of hit me, you know, and... Um, one was as actually, you know, I know we're not supposed to be digging in and doing like hardcore exegesis and, and research. I, I was just, I've been curious as to see what other Old Testament scholars have said about the book. And Waltke's chapter, he actually concludes, intentionally concludes the whole Old Testament theology he wrote with Ecclesiastes um, in a very kind of poignant way. It's like, this is like, this is, this is what it's all about in a way, uh, the whole Old Testament, which was like, wow, that's crazy. And um and he, he just gives like this really kind of like helpful, observant reading of the text that I'll note a couple of things here. Um, the other the other kind of kind of confluence um, was I was just lecturing this week in my kind of worldviews, world religions course on existentialism. And uh, and, it you know, you, I forget that, like, wow, like Ecclesiastes is so existentialist, you know, like I would like to dig in to some of these writers and just see, like, were they actually like engaging in the text at all? Because um it, there's just so much in terms of like things like absurdity you know like you think of like Kierkegaard you think of, my favorite existentialist is Albert Camus um the absurd is this big deal and Waltke was making this point that like yeah for the writer of Ecclesiastes like the world that we live in is absurd it's totally absurd it's just that you know if we kind of keep our reality entirely to like the empirical realm you know whether you're going to pursue wisdom and righteousness and justice or if you pursue folly or any they're all it's all absurd you have to look above the sun right to the to these ultimate things like we were talking about before and he, he really kind of made an interesting connection that i hadn't thought about before um with the word now you're gonna you're the old testament guy so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to correct my pronunciation here but the word that we get is vanity vanity or meaningless or vapor is habel right uh, I, I would say Havel, but Havel. you're good. Okay, sorry, I didn't do either, so. More of a but V that... sound for the B. Okay. Either words, okay. not the worst, not the worst ever. It's okay, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to fake it till I make it, because I can't. Um, but he makes a really interesting connection. So he says, like, here the idea of, like, vapor is is something, it's, there's a sort of tangibleness to it that we can kind of, like, see that the, it appears to our senses, but then it's always elusive. And he draws a connection to Abel. And like, this is the nature of the post-fall state, right? So right after Eden, they're removed. And then they have their son. And Abel, the, there's a linguistic connection. In fact, actually, it might even be the same word. You know better. It's, it's the exact same word. Uh, is, I mean, it's a name, Abel. obviously. So it's not, but you get my point. Yeah, yeah, it's like Adam and Adam and stuff. But like, um, really like interesting in observation is that here they have this son who's this child of promise, really like they're the one that they're going to think is the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Right. And he's, he's a vapor. He's, mm. he's elusive. He's, he's there, he's in the prime of life and then he's gone, you know, and that kind of like illustrates like everything that's being said here. So you, you have obviously a good, it's the son, 
and yet now he's gone. Even that, that, that we can put so much of our value and, and stake so much of our meaning in, and it's just elusive. And he notes some things here, like when he's talking about like even our pursuit of wisdom, um, if it's just mere earthly wisdom, as good as that is, right? So this is like us when we talk philosophy and we want to read our Aristotles and our Plato's and, and all these great ancient philosophers. That's good so far as it goes, right? And he says like in here, effectively pursue it, but it's not ultimate. There's something more and all that stuff will ultimate will be elusive too. And, um, and so like the kind of basic conclusion that Waltke makes is like, yes, pursue wisdom. The writer never says pursue folly. So he's never looking at folly in any way as a kind of good, but he's relativizing our wisdom and, uh, and, the, and the, the kind of conclusion is that once you see the absurdity of the world, and then you see that the ultimate meaning is something that's beyond it, right? Above the sun, as it were. Like, and so he kind of gets into the discussion of like what above the sun means. It's like, it's not like obviously like spatial. It's like, it's the transcendent realm where God is. And, uh, and then his, his, his point here then is like, once you see this absurdity, once you actually know then where you kind of like determine all matter, all meaning coming from God, then you can actually like, it actually kind of frees you to enjoy life, right? Because you're not going to put all the stock in the ultimate, in any of these things is in any way ultimate. And so it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you can kind of like eat, drink and be merry. Yeah. Enjoy your wife, like enjoy the good things. What Walke actually says um, here, if you've got the book and you want to, and somebody wants to chase down the reference, it's on page 963. He says, to be sure, work on an assembly line seems without meaning and even creative work that seems meaningful turns out to be meaningless death but thank god if he has given you the grace to be thankful for a paycheck thank god that you can clank your fork on a china plate and eat a steak life is absurd as the existentialist knows too well but thank god you can put a disc on your cd player and hear beethoven i was like man that like just gets it you know like there is enjoyment but like Mm -hmm. those things aren't ultimate so for what it's worth, uh, you know, it's interesting when you're reading that my, um, my brain went to Ecclesiastes or my eyes. And then my brain Ecclesiastes seven twenty four. the author says what exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? Yeah. And there's a sense of, uh, to use a fancy word, apple fatism here. There's, there's a sense in which reality as such, everything that you can know, whatever it is, is really beyond any, individual's ability to comprehend yeah it's just too far out it's impossible to know it all and in one sense like what's helpful for me is like it, it's almost a book like ecclesiastes is showing us the limits of natural knowledge yeah because at the very end of the book you'll say like at the end of the day you've got to fear god and keep his commands <laughs> like right. that's what is within your power to know and do but what's not is the ability to know everything and this gets into a really important, I think, crisis that we all encounter today, even if we don't know it. Because there's so much data and information available, we feel like we need to know everything. Right. We can't rely on experts because we need to do our own research. But when the data is, like, from our point of view, infinite, you know, relatively speaking, right. it's finite technically, but infinite from our point of vantage, we actually can't. It creates anxiety and worry and doubt. And you you end up not being able to trust anyone with yeah. anything. But what he's saying, I think, is you've got to accept your human limitations. You are a finite individual 
bound to Havel, bound to futility, bound to, I guess this is the word picture that comes to my mind. It's cold outside and you breathe out and you see your breath for a moment, then it kind of fizzles out. That's really what creature, creaturely knowledge is. As yeah. creatures, the knowledge we gain or create or the technology we gain or create from the perspective of the vastness of time and space and eternity is just a breath of cold air that you see momentarily because of, I guess, the moisture, and then it disappears. It's nothing, yeah. comparatively yeah. speaking. And that that relativization, being relativized like that actually doesn't, I think, throw you into maybe depression or something. It actually gives you a sort of sense of ease and confidence that it's not up to you because you can't figure yeah. it all out. Yeah, it's like the existentialists, right? There's such a stress on the idea of despair, you know, that you despair, you know, as you move into, you know, for a Kierkegaard, it's like part, part of the, the so-called leap of faith, you know, as you move, these are these stages, right? You go from this kind of low aesthetic stage of like just being taken in by appearances. Then you move up this, this ladder, as it were, uh, to the stage of the ethical where you understand duty and that kind of thing. And then Kierkegaard says, then you have to make kind of like a leap of faith. You suspend the ethical for a greater good and then cast yourself into God. But this, there's this despair that comes with it. And what I'm seeing here is that like in Ecclesiastes, kind of what you're saying there is that like, there's actually no need to despair. When you actually get it, when you actually, if you, in Kierkegaardian language, you move into the religious sphere, um, with that comes contentment. You're content in what you don't know. You're just trusting now, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, God is ultimate. And so, yeah, you can be content with the things that you have in this life. And because uh, he says like in, in uh, nine, nine, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your find your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. <laughs> like, wow. You know, which is free. See, I want to, this is a totally different context, but I think that is so freeing when you just sort of realize that what you have is what you have and you don't necessarily need more. You can relativize even in sense of pain or suffering. Mm -hmm. It can be really helpful to relativize it, you know, beyond like to the, to the comparison of history, geography, eternity, all these kinds of things. So that it doesn't seem like the only and biggest thing. Yeah. Uh, well, it relativizes helpful. in light of God, right? Like Walt right. even gets into like a little bit of the attributes. Right. That God is just so far beyond right. this particular kind of God that the Christian faith has understood him to be. And we're not. And so right. that really actually does relativize everything. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you don't care about suffering or anything like that. It just means that you put it in its place, which yeah. is the best place to be because it's the most comforting place to be. Yeah. I, I even think some of the realism is nice. Like in seven... Uh, chapter 7 and verse 10. He says, don't say, why were the former days better than these? The answer, since it is not wise of you to ask this, meaning nostalgia or, or just kind of the good old days, that yeah. kind of thinking, well, I don't know exactly what his intent is, but by, on reflection in my life, that kind of thinking makes the present bad or not exciting or not good or not useful. A lot of times you kind of make up the past what so feels better than it really is. Yeah. And it doesn't give you any like perspective for, for the things that you can actually enjoy today. It's you're always yearning for something you've lost. Right. Um, yeah, again, he doesn't exactly say, it, but it's not wise. <laughs> yeah. It's funny when you think of like 
you know, Martin Heidegger, another sort of, you could call an existentialist, I guess. Um, and he's, you know, he describes humans as being unto death. And, uh, you know, it's, it's this idea of like kind of having to wrap your mind around the reality that, you're, 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 that your ultimate reality is going to be death for you, you know? And it's kind of like, it's the same sort of thing. Uh, what is it? He says, the heart of the wise, yes, yeah, in seven four, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. You know, and it's like actually recognizing, you know, that, that, that all this is really is a vapor. It's fleeting, not ultimate. Everything's going to wind up in the grave, you know, and it's like, wow. But then the, the idea is not to despair over that, to give you this right. contentment because you understand who God is. Well, uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, verse two of chapter seven, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go yeah. to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind and the living should take it to heart. Meaning something like, have death before you always so that you can live now well. Right. Um, I, I recently talked to someone on a podcast who's diagnosed with terminal cancer. Uh, so he's going to die. Uh, and yet he's able to kind of like just talk through all these things. And I think the idea of, I don't remember the specifics, but this is kind of just my impression is like knowing that you're going to die is not necessarily horrible. It's not good. You don't love it. You don't enjoy it, but it does help you to think about life. Now, Applied that everywhere, all of us have a disease that will ultimately end up in death, right? Like all of us are, cor are corrupting. And so even if you're quote unquote healthy, the healthiest person in the world is still dying. We all are. So the question is, are you going to have an expedited death or an elongated life before death? And if we're all going to die, there is actually something quite valuable to, to having that at the, at your horizon <laughs> because it relativizes things and it, I mean, a lot of what he talks about in Ecclesiastes is like, you can't take what, you, what you've done. Like, you can't for sure give it to someone after you. You're, I even think of like Martin Luther. He tried to give his, his uh, authority and possessions to his wife, Katerina, and he couldn't legally. <laughs> he tried and it didn't work out. So it's like, even when you die, you can't plan for what happens afterwards. Yeah. And uh, that's okay if you don't put all your ultimate value in that. Yeah. It's okay. Like it makes you like when, you hear, when you hear a story, a tragic story of, a, of somebody's young child dying, you know, and then the response that people have to those sorts of things, oh, it just made me want to go hug my kids. Mm. It, exactly that, right? It's like, I mean, I, you know, all the stuff that was happening this past year in Ontario with that young boy that had been hit by a car that was all in the news and, you know, they were in our circles in terms of our denominations and stuff. And it was like, I'm watching that stuff online and I'm like, oh my, and that was all I wanted to do was just be with my, my kids, you know, because yes. so, it really does. Death really focuses uh, what's important. I, I think so. And it's, it's one of those things that we're, we're not surrounded by death anymore. He was. And, and even when he opened like Job, for example, Job three, I think I've heard it described as something like a, a harrowing death poem. Um, you know, I can't remember the words, but like, I wish I wasn't born, like all this kind of stuff. Right. And so I, I think there, there is something in the ancient world where people are, they do recognize the mort our mortality and that it can be entirely helpful, especially the idea that you can't take what you have in this life with you into the beyond. And again, that's how the book ends. At the end of the day, you got to fear God keeps commands because everything else is, um, What's the, what's the word you're using for Havel? You, you uh, transient or something like that? Uh, it was like vapor. Vapor. Vanity, yeah. Um, Walkie, I think, preferred the idea of, of vapor. But like, vapor. He, he does really link it to the absurd. Like the idea that, that these things are absurd. Like, 
it's absurd to put your value in these earthly things merely. And, uh, and then it's, and you're going to feel the absurdity when you do it. That's it's why people get so disillusioned with life. It's like, it's why the existentialists are right, but they just don't know why they're right. Um, the, and the other thing is uh, kind of on this similar theme is it, it would be hard to read this book as a teetotaler. I was, I was actually just looked at the word wine here and literally was thinking something along exactly that line. <laughs> wine makes life happy. 1019. Yeah. Yeah. You know, throughout the refrain is there's nothing better to enjoy what God gives you. And what God gives you is uh, to eat, to drink and to enjoy yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, alcohol here is viewed as great. In fact, in Deuteronomy 15, one of the promises there is that we'll enjoy strong drink together. <laughs> Which is Psalm 104, 15, you know, this whole discussion in the create, it's the creation uh, commentary. And it says that, you know, God gives all these great things, including wine that gladdens the heart of a man. Like, you know, it's like, if I'm drinking some like alcohol-free wine, my heart ain't all that glad, you know? I mean, think uh, about it even in terms of the wedding feast of Cana. It's like, yeah. Jesus knows this, right? The best he stuff back. He is actually doing this as the embodiment of wisdom, right? And recognizing that the, that wine is this Old Testament sign of God's blessing to his people, you know? So here's De- Deuteronomy 14, 26 is what I was actually thinking. And spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And so you shall eat there he's before the a, a, He's a Lefroig man. Strong drink. <laughs> all, all I'm saying it's a really interesting thing is I, I think a lot of times we're afraid to enjoy life in ways yeah. that are improper given what God gifts us. Yeah, I don't. I'm not. None of us are advocating obviously abusing good gifts. No, it's not. Drunkenness it's not and all that, but that, that's the thing. It's 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 actually reasonable, right? It's 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 a it's a it's actually understanding what enjoyment really is because you know how it is, right? It's like it's like if I get you know I'm, I'm a sucker for chips and it's like. You know, if I, if I get a, like, we get these, like, these, because we're on this, you know, whole foods diet and stuff. So we get these, like, special, like, cassava chips, which are, like, incredible. And it's, like, literally last night as I was reading Waltke, um, you know, my <laughs> wife comes in, she's like, is that bag of chips empty? I'm like, uh, might be. You know, <laughs> it was absurd. Then, yeah, it was crazy that I did it. was absurd. And it's like, you kind of feel like garbage after you did it, you know? It's, right. It's not something that you actually really want. <laughs> you know, you always oh. Well, nine seven, go eat your bread with pleasure and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for yep. God has already accepted your works. There's a lot. There's an interesting balance here. It's mortality on the horizon, but don't don't feel bad about enjoying life. Yeah. In fact, take advantage if you have it and see it as as he says as a gift of God. Right. Like, yeah. These things are God's gifts to us. You know. Um, no, it's 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 a it's a it's a weirdly freeing book uh, where you where everything gets relativized. You actually are allowed to enjoy this world, but don't make it ultimate. God is ultimate, right? There's a pairing between the use of, yeah. of vapor or whatever and vanity, and the uh, and the use of of under the sun, like this under above the sun language. Right. Like those are two predominant themes in Ecclesiastes, and that's what it's trying to do is trying to take you from the mere empirical sensual realm to something that's more transcendent. And when you get yep. that, when you get that, you get to have, you get to enjoy the right. empirical sensual realm. If this is all you have, you actually won't enjoy either. You know, when you, so you enjoy this and you get this. Yeah. Except your limitations, then, then that which is limitless is something you can't grasp and can only accept, Yeah, which is entirely helpful. I- there, there's there's so many like interesting verses. I'm I, I even like in seven twenty one. 
don't pay attention to everything people say. <laughs> or that's a good one. You may, you may hear your servant cursing you. Yeah. For in your heart, you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. Totally. I just, just a I really simple. That immediately, I was like, shoot, you're right. Yeah, it's it's true. He's observed. Yeah. And one of the things is, is so freeing is like, if life is absurd in, in, in the proper sense, then like, who cares what people think about you? <laughs> you know, like that's part of it. And if you hear it, could get you mad. And also at the end of the day, you've done it too. So chill out. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I want to see something here that I read that I can't, I can't remember uh, where it was. So I had to search it online here about, uh, there was this thing relative to these discussions were, oh, right here in 1020. Uh, where it says, uh, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. And it's, I just, you know, because of this context of everything about should we disobey the government? Yeah. Lockdowns and stuff. And it's oh, like, yeah. how many people, you know, how many, how many people, how many pastors do you see online right now? And I've done it, you know, like with Justin right. Trudeau or Trump or Biden. And it's like, we're cursing the king. And he's like, even in your thoughts, right? Not just saying it out loud or typing it on social media, even in your thoughts, mm-hmm. do not mm-hmm. curse the king. And I was like, wow, you know, because he, whatever the king is doing to you, even if he's awful, it's still relative in regards to God, you right. know? Yeah. Keep the king's command because of your oath made before God. <laughs> Eight, two. Uh, there, yeah, there, there's so much wisdom, and but I, I love the realism of it all. It's not cheery. It's not. Yeah. Always respect the king because he always treats you great. It's like, right. you no, know, he might oppress right. you, take everything. You know, like that's the kind of vibe that you get from this. I think it's interesting. Uh, seven uh, seventeen, don't be ex- uh, sorry. Seven sixteen, don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Yeah, this again. This reminds me of the kind of advice I, I'm. My head's in the Reformation, so Luther's in the Wartburg in about fifteen twenty two. Melanchthon's all nervous about reforming, and he's like, Melanchthon, just do your best, man. Sin boldly. And what, by sin boldly, he means reform according to your, the best you can do. Yeah. Really doesn't matter. God's forgiven you and everything we do is sinful anyways. So just do your best and, and kind of yeah. just get over your, your anxiety. Yeah. Um, kind of maybe reminds me of that a little bit. Yeah. Um, do you have any other kind of, there's a number of verses I could read, but there, anything else that kind of stands out? At, well, there's, there's all these like cool aphorisms too, right? Which again is very, it's, it's so philosophical. It's like, you know, when you think of, you know, well, ancient, yeah, talk about this. The, the, well, a- ancient the philosophical nature of the book. Yeah. It's like, you know, you think of ancient philosophy and you think of somebody like Heraclitus, you know, the, the fragments that we have of Heraclitus are all aphorisms. They're, I would say to my students, I'm like, you could tweet these. Like, these are just entirely tweetable quotes and they're all like really kind of wisdom oriented. Mm. I mean, some of them are crazy. You know, so like, Twitter is a forum for philosophy is what we're saying. There you go. Well, it could be, you know, and then, yeah. and then he just starts off with like all these aphoristic statements, right. That, that have, I mean, you can see why people think it's Solomon that wrote it because it has such a correspondence to Proverbs. Mm. Right. But like, um, you know, all throughout 10, I mean, some of them are funny, you know, right off the bat, dead flies make the perfume perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor, you know, uh, verse eight, he who digs a pit will fall into it and the serpent will bite him when he breaks through a wall. <laughs> like they have that, like, if you know Heraclitus, it's like, they have that same feel to them, you know, but they're all like, some of you don't get, I'm like, why, why would fall, a falling wall indicate that a serpent would bite you? But I mean, that might've been something that just happened in their day that we've just kind of lost that, that, that thing. But like, there's all these kind of like wise aphorisms that are just like kind of worth, you know, meditating on just taking one and just going and sitting and thinking about it, you 
Yeah, I just looked at the verse you read. So 1020. So do not curse the king even in your thoughts. I'm skipping a little bit. For a bird of the sky may carry the message. That bird is Twitter. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> you tweet it out, you know. <laughs> this, this is a prophetic book. No, I'm just kind of being silly, obviously, but that's um, awesome. There's some, I mean, that's just it's interesting. Well, let's let's come to the ending of the book, just so we can kind of end end it. It, it might even be worth reading that last that yeah. last uh, the, from nine to to the end, you know, because that really is what what he's driving towards. Now, there's the there's the argument: is this is chapter twelve a bookend, like an inclusio with chapter one, right? Which probably could be. And some argue is that a narrator, and then there's like the actual author in the middle, whatever it is, it's, you're still getting the sense of the purpose. Right. Of the book, you know, so. Before, uh, maybe you should read that before. Do, let, me, let me just say one thing. One of the delights about Ecclesiastes, and I would say the book of Job too, is it, it gives you the, the, a pattern for you to think through all the things that you're curious about, about reality. Yeah. While showing you that you have limits and then giving you the final word. So Job does that with the revelation of God. Here we have this here, like, the end of the day, you can't know everything, so fear God. But it doesn't appear that he's saying, even though things are futile or, or short term, he's still actively searching these things out and writing this book for us. Yeah. Meaning he's actually still pursuing these things while affirming the limits of them. Or else, yeah. why write in a sense? Yeah. Why would why would we have proverbs? Why would we have any of the wisdom literature? Um. So so I just think for us, like sometimes we're we're a little too afraid or unused to just the ability to think about the way things are and, and reason and, and converse, talk about it, do a little bit of practical philosophy like this guy's doing. Yeah. Like Ecclesiastes shows us, but at the end of the day, I think we need to have some sort of, some sort of stability. And I think that's what 12, nine to 14 gives us. Do you want, do you want to read that? Yeah. Well, it, it's like a framework, right? It's like an edifice that like holds up our yeah. reality. And if we have that held up, there's a lot of freedom within those limitations and those boundaries. Right. right? Yeah, so he says in 12.9 to the end, he says, besides, this is the ESV, besides being wise, the preacher also uh, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Pretty universal statement, huh? Pretty universal statement, yeah. It's not even uh, using the covenant's name of, of Israel, nor saying it's for Israel. It's for everyone. This yeah. Is, yeah. A universal... who is, who is, God, is God Elohim there yeah. or is it Yahweh? Elohim. So, yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, it's the end for, for all of, of humankind. I'm just kind of I'm looking at it actually in, in Hebrew, but uh <laughs> interesting. Um so I, all that to say, I didn't look at it more carefully because I can't really do it on the fly at the second. <laughs> the uh I think it's a fascinating book. I think it gives you permission to think out loud. I think it gives you permission to to be real, I think there's a, a false uh, affected Christianity that says everything is awesome when you're part of a team. Um, everything is awesome. Yeah, look at that, you know, from the Lego movie. Okay, well, never mind then. Uh, so everything is awesome when you're part of the church. Well, no, that's basically the prosperity gospel. Yeah. 
you're, you have you have a yes in Jesus Christ. You're declared just forever. You'll have eternal rewards. But in this life, it's a it's a mixture of good and evil, because you have the flesh that still is within you. And then the world is, of course, cursed, waiting for its redemption. There's a cosmic reconciliation that includes the universe and you. And before then, I think these sorts of questions are ones that Christians should be the most honest about. Um, Job is the, more of the question of theodicy. This is the question of absurdity. Yeah. So why does evil exist? In, in, or why do, you know, why do bad things happen to good people in Job? But Ecclesiastes is more or less, why is the world absurd? Yeah. Yeah, so deeply philosophical they are and you know it strikes me that while we have this the revelation of jesus christ we nonetheless are still able to think yeah <laughs> it's a both end and a mutually informing thing one of the benefits of reading ecclesiastes after the cross or even after job, the resurrection really because the resurrection yeah and job too i mean uh the cross at least gives more clarity to the theodicy that is put forward in Job, which and is I think, Luther. And the, okay, I don't know about that. And Ecclesiastes, what, what does he say? The Theologia Crucis, the theology, Luther's theology. Of the oh, the cross. theology of the cross. Everything through the lens of the cross. Yeah. So. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I'm aware of. I thought maybe it was a Job comment in particular. Yeah. But I think even Ecclesiastes, like, I think after the cross, the absurdity of life actually makes better sense. And in fact, I think there are certain things that we carry with us, but name, they're not the material things the objective things that we gain but rather than the, the, what the so-called immaterial relations that we have in terms of love, the way that we've served one another, all of that is actually carried forward. We have a judgment seat, the Bema seat where, where those things are carried forward, those good works. Yeah. Whereas the, uh, the things that we, you know, Jesus talks about the things that we collect in uh, barns and so on rust and the moth gets at and all that kind of stuff. So I, I yeah, do think, think of, you think of the eschaton, right? It's like yeah. we're called to look above the sun. When Christ returns, that which is above the sun now comes down. There you go. Right? And there's this perfect overlap. We know we then can actually then truly enjoy the things of this world. And we can, in a way, I guess, make them ultimate in the eschaton because of this pure overlap now with the finally consummated kingdom that we just yeah. don't have now. There's like a disconnect in a weird way. It's already a not yet. Mm. And Ecclesiastes has a, has a slant to the not yet. We have... Uh, a perspective on the alreadiness of Jesus, but not yet the full consummation. But one that, but one that limit between the limitless and us is is, is more or less united with heaven and earth. Yeah. Then I think a lot of these questions will become answered. We'll see God face to face. We'll be known as we truly are. We'll know Him as He truly is, and we'll have a sense and think of of these sorts of questions finally being answered in ways that are satisfying to our souls in ways that they can't be today. Yeah. And that tension is fine and good and healthy that we have now. It's what it means to part of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, walk by to, faith, not by sight. Yeah, there you go. We we are saved in hope, not in the fulfillment of every aspect of the reality. So that's as good. I, I think we can probably stop here. We, we've kind of gone through the whole book. We have not gone verse by verse, but I think we. One of the things you can do when you do a theological reading like we're doing is you can highlight some of the major ideas. So when someone returns to it and reads it verse by verse you can kind of connect the logic better. And I think sometimes the opposite angle, if you try to do every verse, sometimes it's harder for someone to see the whole picture and then read it for themselves. So I hope those who are listening have been benefited by this. I'm trying okay. to convince Ian to uh, to let us uh, stay in the Old Testament and look at Job before we re return to Calvin. So we'll see what happens next week. But thank you so much, Ian, well, for definitely today. Intrigued.